And if you want, go ahead and turn your Bibles open. And if you, if you don't want to, let's go ahead and do it anyway, okay? 1 Peter 1. You may say, well, you're forcing things on me. He's like, no, I'm trying to get you to be obedient. So let's do that. 1 Peter. And I want to go over some preliminary points with you about what we've seen so far. Now, I had every intention today of covering uh, the instances that are brought up in 1 Peter 1 regarding the salvation of the soul. And then I was going to move to Hebrews 10, because that also deals with the salvation of the soul. And as I was looking over the um, schedule for our conference coming up on Friday night, Saturday, and then Sunday morning, Dr. Paul Tanner is actually going to be speaking on Romans 10, verses 32 through 39, which deals with the salvation of the soul, and I didn't plan that. So I'm excited because that tells me that God's doing something beyond my stupidity. I love it. Uh, I love being corrected out like that and just seeing his hand work. And so um, I'm interested to see what he has to say about the salvation of the soul, and I'm interested to see how that helps enhance our understanding because he has a much more able and studious mind than myself. Some things that we've covered so far in the salvation of the soul. If you want to look on your paper, you can. We also have them for you up on the screen. The first one is, is that the Spirit is saved instantaneously when one hears the gospel of the grace of God and responds in faith. That person is declared innocent by God. We call this justification. Very important. The second thing we have here, the soul is comprised of one's mind, will, and emotions. It is also known as the life or the self-life being synonymous with our fleshly nature. Third one, the soul life is saved in choices that are made now. Now remember, one of the problems we make is that we hear the word saved in salvation and we automatically think go to heaven when you die and that's not the case. The idea is to be delivered or rescued. Uh, the idea is to be healed in a situation. It's not just used as far as avoiding the lake of fire, okay? So, the soul life is saved in choices that are made now. This is progressive sanctification, where we yield to God's will, and He conforms us to the image of Christ. Essentially, it's us looking at what God has said in His Word about any given situation that we face and saying, you know what, God? I'm going to get out of your way, and you have your way. Now, let me go ahead and reveal the dirty little secret about why that's so tedious. It's because a lot of the times, getting out of God's way is sitting and waiting on God. And we are not a people that like to wait. Where did I see the other? Even, even Delano, raise your hand. Delano is a manager at Pizza Hut. Even, or not Pizza Hut, Pizza Ranch. Even Pizza Ranch has a drive through a drive-thru for pizza. Anybody know how long it takes to cook a pizza? You order a special pizza, you order it at the window, and you wait for it? It's like, you could call it in, yes. Thanks for ruining that, Sue. But still, 12 minutes. 12 minutes is what you're looking at to cook a good pizza, at least. 12 to 15. We'll wait for that pizza. But still got to drive through somewhere, right? Because we got to have it now. Got to have it now. That's how we are. That's how, and get this. I think this is important for us to recognize. That is how the world has shaped us. I think it's important to recognize that. Waiting on the Lord is something that mature Christians know about. It's not something that carnal Christians know about. And I think that's a lot of what makes the difference in maturity in situations. So when we talk about this idea of yielding to the Lord, Lord, I'm surrendering rights. In this situation, I'm asking for you to have your way. A lot of times, it's just sitting there with your hands up waiting for him to work. And then when he works, you get in there and you work with him. One of the worst things we can ever do in our Christian life is to be working in a place where God is not. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be there. That's dangerous. So, yielding to God's will, because he's going to conform us to the image of Christ, the fourth one, and I think this is the most important thing because this is the one that is often overlooked. We get so busy for Jesus, we forget this. Humility, let me say the word again, humility 
is an indispensable attitude in the salvation of the soul. Or let me say it this way. Our mind, will, and emotions will never be redeemed. They will never come to full maturity in line with our spirit if humility is absent from the equation. It is impossible to mature as a Christian if humility is gone. You cannot do it. And we're going to see more of that today. The last one here. Jesus tells us that it is possible to lose one's soul or life should he or she refuse to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Christ. Now, I know some of you have had some problems with me saying that way, but I want you to think about this in those instances that we looked at. Why would Jesus warn them of that possibility if it wasn't a possibility? I think that's important for us to wrestle with because what it does is it creates conviction that the Holy Spirit brings and it causes us to ask that, that age-old question that God asked Adam, where are you? I think it's important for us to figure that out. Where are we in our walk with the Lord at this moment? Where are we in our fellowship with the Lord? Do you have fellowship with the Lord? Are you just in relationship with him? Or are you in fellowship, intimacy with him? It's an important question. It says here, this has no association with eternal damnation, which is a matter that is settled when one believes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. However, losing one's soul or life has everything to do with having nothing to show for in eternity because our earthly lives were lived for ourselves and not for the Lord. Instead, it was all about our agenda, what we were going to get accomplished, how we wanted people to look at us, the impact that we were going to make. We were going to make a name for ourselves. Or I didn't care about doing anything with ministry and serving the Lord whatsoever. I was just cool coming to faith with him and getting what I needed with him. And understand this, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation or lose your salvation. It's impossible. He offers it as a free gift because of the work of his son, not because of the work we have done or will do or promise to do for him. That has no bearing on it whatsoever. At that moment, you have eternal life, and justification is a done deal. It's not a, it's not a progression. It's done. It's instantaneous. Now the question is, now that you have new life and forgiveness of sin, and God sees you as righteous in his sight, and his Holy Spirit indwells you, and he has empowered you, will you steward that well, or will you waste it? That's the question. That's the question. So here's a summary. The salvation of the soul is the triumph of faith in present trials for which glory is received in a future day. Let me read it one more time because I think this is the best summary I could find. The salvation of the soul, our life, our mind, will, and emotions is the triumph of faith in present trials for which glory is received in a future day. It is living now in light of what's been promised out ahead. And that's what we're going to see. So the first instance that we deal with with the idea of the salvation of the soul is in verse 9 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Now, just so you know, as in James, 1 Peter, the entire book, is all about the salvation of the soul. It is all about how do you live on fire for Christ? How do you pursue a fervent relationship? And what you find is that trials are indispensable to our growth. Now, if we know that humility is an essential ingredient and that trials are going to be indispensable for growing us into the image and likeness of our Lord, Christ himself, then what that says is that in the midst of those trials, you have to have humility. We are too quickly looking to save ourselves out of those trials. Again, waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord, looking for him to be the difference. Now, as any good Bible student, since we're starting in chapter 1, verse 9, where do we really need to start? Verse 1, why is that? Because context determines meaning. So let's walk with this, okay? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father 
by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now, that's a good greeting. Let's break it down real quick. Peter is writing to people who are aliens. Are we talking about Mars? No, but why would he designate them as aliens? What do you think? Beyond the mask, dialogue with me. What do you think? What's that? Not believers, so they're lost people? So Paul's going to write these chapters to lost people. See, that's the risk. When you put it out there, I get to spank it. All right? (laughs) Just kidding. Aliens, why? Different countries? No, possibly. In fact, if you've got a different translation, it would probably read this way. To those who reside as elect sojourners or elect angels or, or, sorry, uh, aliens or chosen aliens. Pilgrims. Pilgrims is one of them that says. Why? What's that? Because a true home is not here. Because one of the first things he wants to set in their mind is you don't belong here. So don't think it's strange when you feel out of place. You don't belong. Why is this so weird? Because I'm not supposed to be here. I've graduated by grace. Thank God. In fact, he brings it up again in 2.11. We'll see that here in just a little bit. But he wants to remind them, if you as a believer in Christ are at home in the world, there's something wrong with the fellowship that's going on with the Lord. You cannot hold both hands. That is a tug of war that will rip you in two. It's absolutely impossible. So there comes a moment in our Christian life where we have to answer the question, is God telling us the truth in his word or is he lying? Is this inerrant or is it not? Is it the authority over every subject that it touches? You have to ask that question. Because if you're just going to subscribe to it, refer to it occasionally, or like I did as a kid, get into it when you know that you had a whooping coming, right? Because that's what I was hoping for. No no joke. This was the greatest lie of my childhood career. I'd be in trouble for something. Go to your room. That's always the worst, right? The waiting. Again, the waiting is always the worst. So there I am. What can I do so that when they walk in, the punishment won't be so bad? I know. I'll pull my little blue tattered King James Bible off the shelf. And I'll get into a weird book. What is, Obadiah, I, uh, I don't even know how to spell that name, but you know what? That's probably holy enough. <laughs> Sit down cross-legged on my bed. Oh, you're here to spank me? I was just reading, oh, but I'm a liar. <laughs> That's what my parents do. They probably should have whooped me for that too. <clears throat> but anyway, now one thing that happens is, is this idea of being elect or chosen gets under people's skin. And the reason is, is because a lot of times it's been touted as the idea that only God has saved some people and hasn't saved everybody. I don't subscribe to that whatsoever. Let me show you why. Number one, the idea of being elect is being the idea of chosen for a purpose. It's not chosen arbitrarily. Now, just whatever. I think I'll just take these people. That's not what it is. How do we know that it's chosen for a purpose? Well, look what it says there, moving into verse two. Chosen according to the, everybody see that word, foreknowledge? This word means to know something beforehand. It never means to cause something beforehand. You can't find it one time in the scriptures where it ever means that. Just understanding this word means that God knows something beforehand. Does he know everybody that's going to come in faith in Christ? Absolutely. If he didn't, he wouldn't be omniscient. So we don't have a problem there. Notice also that the idea here is not individual elect. It's dealing with a group of people, yes? In fact, we're going to see later on in chapter 5, it actually addresses the elders of this church. That's what tells us he's writing to a body of believers, but they've been scattered out, and they have a group of elders that are overseeing these different regions of which they've been scattered. But that's not all. Notice that it says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctifying. Setting apart. That the fact we've been set apart for a reason. Now, when you come to faith in Christ, you are set apart from the world, and you are now put in a position, graciously speaking, of God's own doing as declared righteous in his sight. That is called positional sanctification, positional setting apart. 
but you also have where we are practically set apart, practically, or we would say progressively sanctified, set apart, as we walk throughout life and as we apply what we know of the word to our situations. So which one could it be? What's interesting is, is the next word tells you. Look what it says. To, what's the word? Obey who? Jesus Christ. You've been chosen by the prior knowledge of God and the set-apartness of the Holy Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. Everybody see the Trinity here? You've been chosen for a purpose, to obey. That's the idea, to be obedient. You've been chosen to submit yourselves to the will of another. In fact, not only that, chosen to obey Jesus Christ, but look what it says after that. This gets us kind of weird. Remember that Peter's got that Jewish background. He's probably writing to believers who came out of a Jewish background but are now redeemed in Christ and are part of the church. Look what it says here. The sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Ooh, that's so nasty. Is that what it's talking about? Being literally sprinkled with blood? Here's what's interesting. In fact, I found an amazing quote in your notes. If you look at the Old Testament, and there came a time, Take the blood and sprinkle it on the law, okay? And sprinkle it on, telling Moses, and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his sons. Was that because they needed to get saved? No. In fact, commentary after commentary that I was reading to see what they said about it was the idea of, well, they needed to be sprinkled in blood because that's talking about the blood of the cross. I don't doubt that. Because they were unregenerate and they needed to be regenerate. They were dead and they needed to be made alive. But wait a second, we're talking to already saved people. If they've been chosen to obey, what you find is the model that the Old Testament sets forward in time after time after time. Day of Atonement, doesn't matter, whatever it is. It's the idea of restoring fellowship with people, or it's the idea of setting them apart unto God because their actions and disobedience has led them away from God. What have these people been graciously chosen to? They've been chosen to the high calling of obeying Jesus Christ and living set apart, sanctified differently. That's the idea here. So now, moving on, you say, well, how in the world can we prove that? Let's move forward, and you'll see it unfold. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Good, good exhortation here. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a what? Market. Market. Thank you for having some gusto in your response. Church, what does it say? Been born again to what? A living hope. Aren't you thankful it's not a dead hope? Not an occasional hope? Well, I hope my salvation will work out. No, 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 no. We've been called to greater. Now, here's a question. What is the living hope? Aren't you thankful that you have a living Savior? See, the great thing is, is that the death of Christ takes care of the sins problem, the offenses that we commit against God. But the fact that he's been resurrected and he, we have a living hope, he is a living Savior. Nobody else has a living Savior. Only the Christians have a living Savior. So since we have a living Savior, that means that there is a resurrected life to be lived. Everybody see how this plugs us back into Romans 5 and 6 that we spent so much time covering. If there is a resurrected life to live, if our Savior is alive, remember this, he does not want to live our lives. Pursuing or developing the Christian life is a bankrupt endeavor. It never works because we're always talking about ways that we need to get better at doing things, but it's often resultant in our own power. There has got to be a dividing line that cuts down the middle of that. And that dividing line that cuts down the middle is saying, no, it's not about you living your life better or your best life now, that guy. It's none of that stuff. It is Christ living his life through you. How does that happen? Hold up your hands and surrender. Get out of his way. Yield. Yield. Yield signs. Yield signs always catch you off guard, don't they? Because you want to go, but you know you better stop. It's the same way with this. Everything in our flesh is saying, go, go, go. Spirit says, no, stop, wait, wait. Why? Because if you drive out there, you're going to get pancake. That's why. You're going to get squished. 
So when we talk about this living hope, that's not something just thrown out there to sound good. It's not just word decorations on your page. We're talking about that we actually have a reason to live. And what you find is, is since we're aliens, it's not found in this world. It's found in the Word of God. That's the difference. That is the dividing line. Now watch with this, where this goes. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, praise God. But not just stopping there. To obtain what? An inheritance. Now, interesting thing about inheritance. When you think inheritance, usually a lot of people are like, getting paid, getting paid, right? Usually inheritance has nothing to do with what you've done. It's something that's given to you, yes. But here's the most important thing that we need to grasp about this. Not only is it abundant blessing waiting for us, but everything about the concept of inheritance has family involved. This is why we look at one another and we say brothers and sisters. That's why we look at one another and we say Christ, and if we call him our Savior, yes, but we can also call him our brother. Absolutely. But we also call him God. But we also have one Father. You see how that works? It's because it's in a family affair. That's what we need to be involved in. It's waiting for us. You have been called to an inheritance. You have something. Now, I'm not going to get all health, wealth, and prosperity. Don't freak out. Your bank account's still going to be as empty as it was when you got here. It's okay. But watch this. We are rich in the Lord. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, means it's not going to decay, it's not going to fade away kind of idea, it's not going to go down. And undefiled, it means that there is nothing impure about it. It will not fade away. It's not going anywhere. It's never going to be less. It is reserved in heaven. It is being held and it is waiting. Look what it says. For you. You have an inheritance. I have an inheritance. There is an inheritance that we're all going to share in. Inheritance has nothing to do with positional truth. Inheritance has everything to do with progressive truth. You are now a candidate for this inheritance because you're in the family of God. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, is will you get the inheritance? It's waiting for you. It's been fully paid for. It's just standing there. It's beautiful, miraculous, awesome, amazing. You're never going to see anything like it. One of the most tragic points in all of the Bible is when Moses got mad at the children of Israel. He was told to speak to the rock, and instead he took the staff and he struck the rock. And God said, I tell you on this day, you will not enter into my land. Now, that's amazing because he'd spent all of his life, well, the latter part of his life, leading these people in all this situation. But because he got angry, let me ask you a question. Does that have something to do with the mind, will, and emotions? You better bet it does. And he took matters into his own hands. And if you read Deuteronomy, you can still kind of see that he's writing it through his teeth. You people make me sin. That kind of idea. He's got a little bit of grit and bitterness going on. But it says that whenever Moses got up on the mountain and he looked over at the land and he saw it for himself, he immediately went to God and he said, God, I see the land that you're taking us into. Please let me lead these people in the land. You know what God tells him? Don't bother me anymore about this situation. I've made my decision. Because disobedience costs you. Especially with Moses, did he have a high degree of revelation? Yes, he did. Now, was he eventually there? We know that from the Mount of Transfiguration, yes. He was eventually there. But here's what concerns me about a lot of times when we live our lives apart from letting Christ live his life. We read all about the glorious inheritance waiting for us, but we don't live like it's true. We don't live with it in mind. We don't live with a view to what is at the end. And so therefore we live for ourselves, put things around ourselves, we rationalize, we isolate, we cut people off. But I guarantee you this, when we stand there and we see what the Lord had in store, of which we did not receive because we loved this world, we lo- or let me, let's put it in Jesus' terms, we loved our life now, rather than losing our life now so that we would save it then. That's where this idea of shame and tragedy comes in. In the presence of the Lord going, Lord, 
what was I doing? What was I doing? I hope that we're not those types of Christians that have to see it to believe it. This is why we're called to live by faith. I could ride that horse into the sunset. Let's move forward. So notice verse four, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now watch this. Who are protected by the power of God through what? Faith. It's either true or it's not true. I either believe it or I don't. Now watch this. For a, and here it is, if you want to mark what he's talking about, this is what this entire letter is about. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, let me tell you about the tragedy that's going on in theological circles and is creeping into our churches about an idea like this, a salvation to be revealed at the last time, is the idea of, well, you can believe in Christ at a moment in your life, but if you live the rest of your life and you don't have an adequate amount of works in order to prove that you were initially saved by faith here, chances are you're not really saved, you have no assurance whatsoever, so don't be surprised when you die, you end up in the lake of fire. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a salvation based on you, not Christ. And that's a problem. That is a works-centered salvation. So if I want to keep the gospel clear and say, no, it's faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone that results in eternal life, and it's eternal life that can never be lost, how do I understand the idea of a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time? Of course, it's talking about a future salvation, a glorification to be had. And glorification can be had in degrees depending on sanctification here and now. So watch how this works. He says here, in this you greatly rejoice. Stop. Is that true? Is that it should be? Uh Uh-oh, we just became Eeyore Christians. That's what we do. Is that true? Do you rejoice in a future salvation ready to be revealed? Well, I know that I should be rejoicing. (laughs) Why not? Why aren't we? Has the world got us down? You can say yes, it's got me down. But it's only got me down and it only drags me down when my eyes are set on it. When I expect better. Let's rid ourselves of all disappointment right now. I tell you, this is how hope can be cultivated instantly. Let's rid ourselves of all disappointment right now and stop expecting better from the world. Stop it. They'll never offer it. It'll never compare. And even though we can't see what's in store, we know from the testimony of saints before us in the word of God, there is no war there. There is no fight there. Christ wins. Christ has won. Christ will win. I don't know about you, but if he's coming back on a white horse and his garment is flying in the, in the breeze, we're supposed to be coming back with him. You know what? I want to have one hand on his tassels, dragging me back with him. But let's stop thinking that this world is going to offer us better. They're not. They can't. They won't. It's impossible. I want to make a political comment, but I'm not going to. The world is not offering us better. Good googly moogly. I don't mean to speak in tongues. All right, verse six. So in this you greatly rejoice. Not just rejoice, greatly rejoice. There is an inheritance waiting for me that Jesus Christ has secured by his blood and he wants me to have it and it's guaranteed for me. It is a salvation to be revealed at the end of time. Does that light your fire? You have to answer that question. It should. Does it? Does it? Now watch this. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, notice, a short time, okay? For a little while, if necessary, if it's needed on us. Sometimes we need trials to conform us to the image of Christ. All of us are going to face it at some point. All of us are going to have hardships in some time. But when it comes upon you, know that it's necessary, it's needed. 
God has allowed it for a reason. And look what it says. Necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Now, I love the fact that they didn't put a period there because verse seven gives you a so that. Everybody see that? Now, remember, a lot of times, whenever you are watching a dialogue unfold in this situation, when it brings up the idea of so that, he's giving you a reason for what he just stated. Here's the reason why you need to know this, okay? You need to greatly rejoice, even though right now it may be hard. Here's why you need to understand this. Here's the reason. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Good grief, this is a pregnant verse. (laughs) This is a pregnant verse. I love you. Oh, man, I'm so glad she's got a mask on. All right, I can see the words, right? I guess you don't need a mask to do that one. Everybody see this word proof? It's the idea of testing. In fact, it's the idea of a genuineness coming forward. Now, here's how people have translated it in many commentaries. Well, here's the reason why. If you're suffering a trial and you don't endure well, you're not really saved. Who wrote that book that we're looking at right now? Peter! Did he fail in any trial situation in his life? In fact, if you read what some of the commentaries say about his responses to the people, the third time he denied Christ, he was cussing like a sailor. Maybe doing one of those things. But he was angry. I don't know him. Which would mean that if his performance is necessary to validate salvation, he probably wasn't truly saved, genuinely saved, until Acts chapter 2, when he's preaching this bold sermon in front of everybody. However, when you look before the time of his denial in Matthew 16, 16, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does he tell him? God revealed this to you. Not flesh and blood. God did it. God brought you to this conclusion. Sounds like he saved me. So now what is it talking about here? Look at the illustration it wants to give you. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, which is one day going to fade away, even though tested by fire, even though fire can be applied to gold and it still be here, one day it's going to pass away. Guess what? Your faith is greater than that. It says it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, we would know this as refining. The idea of heating gold so much to a point to where all the impurities that are encased in it bubble up to the surface, and then you got this real spiffy guy, probably has a lab coat on, takes a scraper, and he scrapes all those impurities off onto the floor, and he keeps heating the gold. And the hotter it gets, the more that the junk inside of it gets to the top, and he scrapes it away. Why? Because it does nothing but increase the value of the gold involved. And as it is refined in fire, it becomes more and more precious. It's the same way with Christians. The more and more that we are refined in the fires of the trials of life, the more precious our faith becomes before the Lord. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Look at the end of 7. That it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We look at this and we go, yeah, because the more a believer lives for the Lord, it's going to result in more praise and honor and glory for Christ. That is true, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about that when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ as a redeemed individual, there will actually be praise and glory and honor that is heaped on you for your faithfulness to the word of God. In fact, notice it says that the revelation of Jesus Christ, everybody see that? That's not talking about the book of Revelation. That's talking about when he comes again and he reveals himself. We know that is the rapture. We know that is being caught up in the air to be with him. And right after that happens, something called the Bema happens. It's the judgment seat of Christ. And it says that everyone will give an account of what they've done in the body, whether good or bad. They'll have to answer for it. Now, that's not for lost people. 
And the judgment seat of Christ is not the same thing as the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is at the end of the tribulation for people who had never believed in Christ and all are judged according to their works to ask the question, do you add up to perfect? That results in the lake of fire. The judgment seat of Christ results in opportunities to rule and reign with the Lord in his coming kingdom. Or let me phrase it this way. The one person that's entrusted with 10 talents and his master goes away to receive a kingdom. Everybody remember this? And he invests well. And when his master returns to settle accounts as the king, everybody see how it pictures together with the end of the world? Christ is coming as king, yes? They settle accounts. He says, look, master, you gave me 10. Guess what? You got 10 more. This is an excellent investment. What does the Lord say? That's what you should have done. The Lord is more gracious than that. He says, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a little. I'm going to put you over much. And then he says this. This is fantastic. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the whole phrase. Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23. So when we talk about the idea of commendation, glory, honor, praise, it's going to be elicited there. It's the fact, and I, and I can't, I have such a hard time grasping this in my mind and heart. It's the fact that Jesus is going to be heaping praise upon those believers that were faithful at that time. That's insane to me. It's absolutely insane because he owes us nothing. But yet, remember, God is a giver. He wants to give. And there's nothing that violates his character about being a giver. He can give and give and give. His love propels him to do so. So now watch this verse 8. And though you have not seen him, anybody here seen him? If Benny Hinn were here, he'd raise his hand. He said, I was shaving the other day. Jesus was right there sitting next to me talking to me. Nope, I know that's not true because you're still alive, okay? So notice. Although you have not seen him, you what? This is controversial. You realize that's not automatic for every Christian. You can't really be a Christian if you don't love Jesus. Are you sure? Do you automatically have a love relationship with him at the moment that you come to faith in Christ? Is that what happened? No. Relationships take time to grow. In fact, here's the way that Jesus stated it to his 11 disciples. That's his audience in John 14. If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. Which means that when you're disobedient, you're not displaying that you have a love for the Lord. Notice that love is manifested as far as the Lord is concerned in obedience. That's what it looks like. So we talk about what qualifies love for the Savior. It's trusting that what he has told us about a situation is paramount to anything else that the world wants to tell us. And because we trust that, we follow that. Why? Because we love him, we want to serve him, we want to honor him. That's sanctification truth, not justification truth. So though you haven't seen him, you love him, which tells me that this congregation was obedient. All I want to do is what God tells me. Gosh, what if we had that kind of abandon? A picture of what's her name on Titanic? Right? Get off me, Leo. I can do it. Right? <laughs> Lord told me. Abandon. Abandon for the Lord. I tell you what, it's the most dangerous prayer you'll ever pray. God, I just want to do whatever you want me to do. Watch out. He'll take you up on that offer. He'll do it. He'll make you second guess whether you should have said that or not. But you know what? He'll also demonstrate infinitely better than you ever could have done on your own without him. The glories or unparalleled. So although you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You, here it is again. Oh, Peter, why you got stick us? You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Let me ask you a question. Are you excited? Let me just go ahead and say it. Are you excited about the end of the world? Some people don't read the book of Revelation because they're scared to death of it. I say, if you're a Christian, read it and rejoice in it. Are we anticipating that day? Is there something in us that goes, you know what? Everything I try to satisfy in the here and now is not working. Why is that? Because there needs to be joy for something greater, greatly rejoicing. Does everybody believe that Emily does a great job? Does everybody know that Emily doesn't do that? So you'll go, oh, Emily, praise God, love Emily. Right? Yeah, she's like, yes, yes, right? 
But she takes some very careful consideration of what I'm going to be preaching over on the Sunday, and she asks, what songs can lead us in true worship? Why? Because I guarantee you when we're worshiping truly, joy happens. Rejoicing happens. You don't have to muster it up. I guess I'm supposed to be greatly rejoicing here, right? The Baptists getting a little bit out of their mold. Right? Somehow we got closer to Jesus when we expressed ourselves that way. Which there's nothing wrong with raising your hands. Understand that. I'm not ridiculing anybody. I'm just saying. We often try to do it in our own flesh. God must be worshiped in spirit and truth, yes? It just happens. The more that we're convinced, the more that our minds are focused on that truth, it comes forth. We don't have to muster up greatly rejoicing. We do it because we can't do anything else. Now, here's where we get into the sticky part. We greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Here it is, verse 19. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. Now notice that. That's how I know he's not talking to them about justification truths. He's talking about what your faith looks like in the end. The outcome of your faith, the what? The salvation of your souls. The salvation of your life, your suke, your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's the idea that because you have obeyed the Lord, your mind, will, and emotions have actually come to a point of maturity because instead of responding to the sensory devices that come through your body and try to pull the flesh, the flesh says, oh yeah, I want to look at that, I want to do that, I want to be involved in that, and it's sinful, the soul instead has been yielding to the spirit in which the Holy Spirit dwells, and now righteousness is produced. Everybody see that? The salvation of the soul is the outcome of our faith. Now, here's what's interesting. Paul, or sorry, forgive me. Peter says that if we want to know what is the logical end to our faith, you believe, you're walking with the Lord, he tells you it is the deliverance of your life. It is the idea of recognizing that you surrender all rights of your life now Not to go to heaven when you die, but because God wants to give you infinitely more than you were settling for before, and it's waiting for you. Are we clear on this idea of what the salvation of the soul is? We starting to get there? Okay, do this. Go over to verse 17. He says here, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, everybody see that that's got connotations about the judgment seat of Christ. Our Father is going to impartially judge each one's work. Look what it says. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Everybody see that alien ideology going on there? But notice it's talking about attitude. Everybody see that? If we know that the Lord is going to judge at the judgment seat of Christ, let's live with that end in mind, because it's going to happen, and let's make sure that our attitudes come correct in this situation, that we are humble. In fact, we would say if we're going to have fear, conduct ourselves in reverence and fear, there's got to be humility there, right? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You can't know anything or talk intelligently about anything if you don't start with God. That takes humility. You ever notice that when you're a crowd of people and you talk about something there's, there's at least one or two people that want to tell you everything they know about that subject. And it's always one up from whatever you know about that subject. That's not humility. That's look at me, look at me, look at me. It's not humility. There's going to be a lot of look at me Christians before the judgment seat of Christ that are going to recognize that was wood, hay, and stubble, and it all burned up real quick. That's not here. While you're on earth, have the right attitude about yourself. Understand you don't belong here. In fact, when you read through the book of 1 Peter, you'll find this dirty word that goes through there, submission, 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 submit yourselves, submit yourselves. Oh my gosh, Peter, why are you making me so antsy? Because let's be honest, guys, our life is not about us. Our life was never about us. Our life was about Christ, about glorifying him. Look what it says. Conduct yourselves with fear during your time of your stay on earth. Why? Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers. In other words, nobody paid money to get you out of depravity. That's not what the cost was. It was infinitely higher than that. Look what it says. But with 
precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown, notice that. He was foreknown. God knew him beforehand, but look at the transition here. Before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of who? You. Christ has revealed himself at a certain point of history for our sake, to help us, to give us hope, to give us something better to live for than what the world has been offering. And look how he moves us forward. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Everybody notice that's something that we do. When we hear the truth and we choose to yield in obedience to the truth, we've actually cleansed our lives. We've actually gotten the gunk out. We're actually moving it away. Cleansing your souls, why? For a sincere love of the brethren. Everybody see that word sincere? If you've got a New American Standard and you'll see the little number next to it, you go over to your margin, it uses the word unhypocritical. Pause for a moment. Look around. Look around real quick. Look at your brothers and sisters next to you. Can you imagine having an unhypocritical love for that person? I can't. But think about it. Because we know people, right? We need to love people. In fact, we're told, love one another as I've loved you. But notice, it's dealing with our lives in relation to the truth and bringing about obedience that all of a sudden, unhypocritical love is cultivated. We don't have to cause it. We don't have to muster it. We don't have to dig in there deep and I'm I'm serving the Lord. It's not this begrudging discipline where it's like grin and bear it, grit your teeth and just try to make it through. That's flesh. Flesh wears out. Flesh dies. Flesh accomplishes nothing. No confidence in the flesh, Philippians 3.3. None. But instead, because of our response to the truth, all of a sudden, guess what? You start loving everybody. In fact, love is the mark of fellowship amongst brothers and sisters. It just starts happening. Everybody see this. We start looking at our lives, how we live our lives soberly in comparison with the truth of God's word and acknowledging, good grief, that's not me. That's not me. And I wish that was me. Lord, that needs to be me. Guess what? That's a prayer God will answer quickly. He will start to root that stuff out. He will start to bring to our understanding, our minds, junk that needs to go. And next thing you know, as it's refined, as the dross is scraped away, what's left? Purity. Purity. Purity in life. Notice this, for a sincere love of the brethren, then he encourages them even more. Fervently love one another from the heart. If God's done, lit the fuse, let it explode, man. Go for it. Blow it up with love. Let me ask you this. Could you stand to have more unhypocritical, fervent love in your life? Yes. Do you know where it's found? Is the, are you letting the word do the work to bring you to that point? It's not about you doing better. It's not about you do it trying harder. It's about you getting out of the way and letting God do the work. That's the idea. We're running out of time. Let me give you one more. Again, I got so much more in your notes that we don't even have. Let's see here. I know I'm trying to. Let's go to five. This, since Jim Brandt said that, let's pick on elders. First Peter 5. In fact, if you notice in 419, it also deals with the idea of souls. Again, I've got all this in your notes. I encourage you to go through them. You got more of that rejoicing business going on in 413, but I want to start in 5.1. We start with therefore, bringing it all together because of everything that's been written, and he turns his direction to elders, overseers in the church. Now watch this. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Everybody see that? A partaker now, an elder now, locked arm in arm and suffering now, but a partaker in glory to be revealed. Let me give you a short little mathematical equation. Suffering precedes glory. Suffering precedes glory. All the time, every time. The greater glory that we will have in the age to come is paramount to the idea of suffering that we experience in the here and now. Following Christ is costly. It will cost us. 
But what's amazing is, is the end time dividends are out of this world. It's more honor, glory, praise, because Jesus was right. Jesus was right all the way. So now watch this. Verse 2, here it is. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. I guess I have to love these people. That's an elder that you want to tell to go home, okay? Notice the next one. But voluntarily, if you've been promoted to an elder in the church, no one should have to coax you to love people. It should be a voluntary response. Notice it says after that, according to the will of God and not for sword gain. Well, if I love them a little bit more, what are they going to give me? That's an elder that you want praying for you, isn't it? No. Send that elder home as well. Fire him. But with eagerness, I can't wait to get in there and love people and build them up and teach them and help them and exhort them to follow Christ at all costs. I'm eager to do that. That's the attitude. Notice it all comes down to attitude in this situation. It's not about what can I get, what can Christ get? How much glory can we give him? Look at the next one here. Nor yet, at, verse three, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge. Well, you should just do it because of the office I hold here. That's the kind of guy you want to punch in the throat, right? Ain't no obedience coming out of that attitude. Oh, well, he said we should do it. If you do, if you do, then you've successfully created a religion. Congratulations. You haven't began cultivating a relationship that leads to fellowship. So notice what he says, verse three. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be what? Examples, which tells you that every elder leads by serving. Every elder leads by serving. If there is an elder that is not serving, they don't need to be an elder. It seems pretty clear to me. Now look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, now that's all throughout this book. That's the rapture, yes? When he comes again for us, talking to believers, look what it says. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know what's amazing about this crown? Seems like it's only for faithful elders. It's only for elders who served faithfully. They will have special crowns because of the service that they rendered unto the church because they were leading by example. Now, verse 5, you younger men, whippersnappers, pay attention. See, I'm 43. I can say that now. You younger men, likewise, be, here's the dirty word, subject to your leaders, to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with, say it, church, Humility toward one another. Notice that that rids entitlement. Notice that that rids, well, I think they're worth being humble to. It takes all that reasoning out of your mind, and it says, you know what? They're your brother and sister in Christ. Humble yourself before them. No one's better than you. You're not better than anybody. It all evens out. Or let's say it this way. What if we were outdoing one another and showing honor to one another? That's a humble position. You think you'd be able to keep people outside of the doors of this church? No, because God's doing stuff here. That's what we want to see. That's what he's encouraging us to do. Look what he says after that. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Why? For God is opposed to the proud. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a prideful heart this morning? Did you come to church as a consumer looking for what you could get so that you would be filled out, you could check out by putting your check in the offering box, and then you could go home with your groceries in tow. If you came to be filled, you are entitled. That's pride. That's being proud. If you've come thinking that you deserve something, that's prideful. We should come to the fellowship of the body expecting love to be exercised amongst one another, truth to be told, worshiping, greatly rejoicing. These are all wonderful things that sit there. They have nothing to do with our pride. But when it becomes about us being at church, what does it say? God is what? God is opposed to you. 
I didn't write that. Peter did. And in fact, Peter didn't even write it. He quoted it. Everybody see that? All caps? Quoted from the Old Testament. A general principle to understand is, if pride is in the mix, God's hand is against you. God is opposed to anything you're seeking to accomplish. Why? Because you're going to get the glory, not him. And guess what? That's not good. But look what it says in contrast. Now, don't get down. Look what it says in contrast here. But he gives, what's the word? Grace. I don't know if you guys know this. That's our favorite word here. He gives grace. Wait, wait. God's giving grace? More grace? I got more grace? Give me grace. Nothing wrong with wanting grace. Grace is from God. We could all use more grace, yes? Here's what we've determined. We could all use more humility, love, and grace today. There's our points to walk away with. Give me more grace. He gives more grace to who? The humble. Uh Uh-oh, there's something that qualifies you for this grace that he wants to give. Attitude. Everybody see it? You come in here demanding it all, guess what? God's hand's going to be against you, and I hope it's against us like this so that we won't do that anymore. But if we come in saying, Lord, how can I serve you today in the body of believers? How can I encourage another person? How can I go out of my way to serve my brothers and sisters in Christ? Lord, thank you for the grace that you've given to me. You didn't have to save me at all. You chose to do so. Good grief. Why did Jesus die? That's so insane. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, God. God's going to give you grace. And you better believe it because he told us it's true. Now watch how it shores up here. Verse 6, therefore, humble yourselves. In other words, this is something we need to do. Notice, he draws all this to a conclusion. Therefore, humble yourselves. Let this be your attitude. If you're not humble right now, then our time of singing might need to be one of prayer. God, I came in with a prideful heart and this was wrong. I confess it before you. This was sin. This was not desiring fellowship with you. This is not looking to better my brothers and sisters. This is not to encourage one another to run the race with endurance. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. What's he going to do? That he may exalt you at the proper time. Now, I'll be honest with you. That could speak of daily life and situations we deal with. I think more of what it speaks of is the idea of when it comes time for the judgment seat of Christ, because everything else in this book has been pointing to that end. We humble ourselves now. He's going to exalt us there. Remember, faithful believers are going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And guess what? Everybody else is going to hear them say that to you as well. He will exalt you at the proper time. Look what it says. Casting all your anxiety on him. Why? Notice it ends with love. Because you have a God who cares for you. Because you have a Savior who loves you. Why should I have this attitude? Why should I live my life in this way? Because God cares more about you than anybody else that you would ever try to surround in your life. Why would he not want the best things with you? Well, if I trust him, it's going to be hard. The only reason why it's hard is because of the love we have for the things of the world. What he is trying to show us is, is you may love these things, but these things don't love you at all. Instead, fall in love with Christ. Why? Because he already loves you completely. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love that you demonstrate to us. Thank you for the call to check our attitudes in light of truth. Thank you for the care. And it's almost like a like a caress that your word gives in, in preaching your love to us. But then at the same time, you warn us of consequences. You're a good father. You warn us about ourselves. You have an inheritance waiting for us. Are we rejoicing in these wonderful truths? Do we greatly rejoice? Are you really our all in all in our lives? Have we just been satisfied with being saved and kind of just been waiting around serving ourselves. That path only leads to death, ruin, destruction, tragedy, heartbreak. God, I'm so grateful that you call us and challenge us and encourage us 
that you've chosen us for obedience and sanctification. You've got things for us to do. You have God things that you want to do through us. And we may not be convinced of that right now. We may scoff at that or think, well, that's impossible. God doesn't know me. God, you know every one of us. And you want to use your children for your work. So Father, help us answer the question of whether or not we want to be used by you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.